All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to get started. We've got a lot of material to get through tonight, so we're going to um, get started right on time, so 6 o'clock on the dot. Um, any questions before we begin tonight? No? All right. Yes. I did start the recording. Thank you, Mr. Recording Angel. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, and there's, uh, if you didn't get the notes for tonight um, that you can fill out, there's, um, Mike, has anybody, anybody not have any? We got them all? Excellent. Sleeping back there as people come in, you'll be able to grab them. All right, this is uh, part two, or, or class two, on our uh, topic of angels. We'll pick up next Sunday on, uh, on Satan and demons, and we'll get into that uh, next um, Sunday. So hopefully I can get through all the material today on angels. All right, so let me pray for us. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for the opportunity to study the subject. Um, that really has, a, you, you have a lot to say about it. I pray, God, that you would both encourage us, um, challenge us, and uh, make us aware Oh, Lord, that uh, what's going on around us and um, the activity that and love that you have for us, even, God, and the fact that you made angels not just to worship you, but also to serve us. And, um, um, and so we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Uh, starting, I, I realize I didn't give you page numbers on this on your document there, but um, uh, starting on that very top page, uh, we have one question to answer that I didn't get to last week, and that is, um, who is the angel of the Lord? Now, if you look at that, if you look, read through your, your Old Testament especially, you'll keep finding this um, angel of the Lord pop up. And it's a definite article in the front. It's usually the angel of the Lord. And so we'll see that a lot. And um, my conclusion of looking at all those verses together is that the angel of the Lord is always a reference to what we'll call the pre-incarnate Christ. Another, another maybe fancy word we use is a, a Christophany, uh, an appearance of Christ before um, his birth, before Matthew uh, began. And so while any New Testament references are to created angels, okay, so there's, a, I think, a very clear difference between the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament is called the angel of the Lord. The New Testament is just an angel of the Lord. It changes, actually. There's no definite article in front anymore. And so uh, I think that, that shifts, and we'll talk about that um, in detail. And so... Um, as we look through the, uh, the Old Testament, the title is given to God the Son as he is commissioned at times in very specific situations uh, to deliver uh, a message and act on behalf of God's people. It's a very, very fascinating study to kind of walk through it. Usually, by default, God sends angels and things like that. There are occasions in the Old Testament where God the Son actually goes himself. Um, and so um, he's, this is similar to again to the New Testament. We find uh, in the Gospel of John, for example, of, of Jesus uh, saying 30 different times, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. And so he was sent by the Father as, as uh, in his incarnation and born. The same would be in the Old Testament. He was sent on occasion uh, to deliver or to act in, uh, on behalf of, uh, of God at times. Uh, we'll find uh, in the Old Testament that ex uh, many times the angel of the Lord explicitly identifies himself as the Lord, as Yahweh. Um, he also is a recipient. Uh, the recipients of his presence often identify him and speak of him as divine, this angel of the Lord. And the biblical authors often explicitly refer to him as the Lord. Finally, his actions are described as an act of the Lord himself. And many times he speaks in the first person. And so he's speaking on, not just on behalf of the Lord, but as the Lord himself. And so that's why we come to that conclusion. The first reference we find in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 16. And in Genesis 16, that's the situation with Hagar. Remember, she is banished or sent out, and she goes out into the wilderness. She believes she's going to die. And, um, and we find the first appearance um, of 
of the angel of the Lord uh, in, in that text, uh, Genesis 16, um, 7 through 10. And we see the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of the water in the wilderness, spring on the way to Shur. And he said, uh, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where, uh, where have you come from and where are you going? It's very similar language to Genesis 2, uh, or Genesis 3, actually, when Adam and Eve, we was looking for them. Uh, she said, I am fleeing from my, my mistress, uh, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered um, for multitude. Okay, so there is a direct act that he is saying, I will do this. No angel um, is able to do that. Um, Again, it's interesting, too, to see that here's, here's the first appearance. If you go to the Gospel of John, his first appearance, we find um, going to the woman of Samaria. Very similar parallels in terms of someone in need, someone lost, someone um, uh, burdened and outcast as well. So it's very similar uh, parallel passages. Um, also, to make it clear that this is exactly who we're talking about, she makes it clear. Um, here she says in Genesis 16, 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. Right? Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So she's making a very clear reference that this is, this is God. This is not just a created angel uh, in this text. Um, we also see another appearance, um, interesting enough, in, in Abraham and Isaac. When he climbs the mountain, he's about to, to kill his son. Um, the knife is up, and he's about to plunge it through. And when it says, actually, the angel of the Lord called out for him to stop and provided what? A lamb, right? A, a ram in the thicket. Very, again, very interesting parallels. Um, the fact that, to think about that is Jesus saying that. Uh, it's interesting to get to the Gospel of John. John calls him, first time he's publicly noticed, is as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's in Genesis 22. I'm not going to, just for time tonight, you're gonna have to, I'll give you the reference and you can look it up. Genesis 22, 11 through 17. The next appearance is with uh, Jacob as he, as he flees Laban. Um, he is referred to as the angel of God there. That's a synonym for the angel of the Lord. And again, he clearly calls himself God in that text as well. We find him um, in Genesis 31, 11 through 13. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Let's lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Again, this is not him saying, here's what God says to you, it's him speaking, saying, this is, this is me speaking to you. One of the most profound ones, actually, is in Exodus, right? When Moses is in the wilderness, comes to the burning bush, right? And the, the angel of the Lord, it says there, speaks to him. And you remember very clearly that he referenced himself as calling himself what? When, he, when Moses says, who, who's, who am I going to say sent me? What's he say? I am. I am, right? Again, very clear statement of Jesus affirming very interesting even arguments for the deity of Christ and all that because you get to John and you find Jesus on multiple occasions um, saying the same statement. He said it in John 8. Um, he said it in, uh, when he was arrested in the garden. I am made very clear statements of himself being God and that's referencing back to Exodus uh, chapter 3 uh, verses 2 through 6. And actually it's going to be chapter 3 all the way through for, verse 14 as well. Another um, a reference to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is with uh, Balaam. Or Balaam and the donkey, that's always an interesting story. Um, interesting enough, there is reference to the angel of the Lord, and we find the disposition of the pre-incarnate Christ taking on that of a, a judge, uh, that of an avenger. You'll see that very similar to like 2, Corinthians I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. Those are the stories of David and the threshing floor. Remember, he had... 
he had accounted the um, he had done the, done the census and judgment was you choose one of the three right remember the angel of the Lord went through um, there we see another reference to to Christ as well but in um, numbers 22 we find uh, the story of Balaam here he is uh, says God's avenger was kindled uh, because he went and the angel of the Lord took his stand in, his, in the way as his adversary, he was riding on a donkey, his two servants were with him, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing on the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The story continues um, as, uh, as he is there, and he bows down to this angel. He confesses um, his sin to this angel. And remember, we looked at last week in, in, the, in Revelation twice that John tried to do that to an actual angel. And what did he say? There the angel said, rebuked him and said, do what? Worship God, right? This angel of the Lord does, did, receives um, that very thing in uh, Numbers 22. Um, another, uh, that's again Numbers 22, 31 to 35. Another interesting one is in, is in the book of Judges. You find that uh, with Gideon and also with Samson's uh, parents, uh, they, are, they all come face to face with this angel of the Lord. And they experience, what they, what they experience is reserved for God alone. They, they think they're going to die. Uh, by being uh, in that presence of the Lord. He says here uh, in, in Judges 6, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Again, he built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. Again, referencing God himself as representation of the angel of the Lord. In uh, chapter 13, uh, 17 through 18, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, this is Samson's uh, fam, uh, mom and dad, says, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Again, this is, if this is just a, an angel, we have a different story, but the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful, right? No angel would say such a thing unless it would be a demon, right? This was, um, this was again, a pre-incarnate Christ in that way. And then the same chapter, later on in verses 21 to 23, we find them um, saying, uh, that uh, surely, right in the middle of that passage, we shall surely die, for we have seen who? God, right? Again, representing the angel of the Lord. So we just over and over again throughout the Old Testament, every time you see it, uh, you can go back through and look at all those references, and you find that this is really uh, the pre-incarnate Christ uh, in that passage. Uh, one, another one is, uh, we'll do two more, and then we'll move on. Uh, 1 Kings 19, uh, we find this with, uh, with Elijah in the wilderness, remember? He ran away, he's depressed. Uh, he's in there, and the Lord feeds him. It says, the angel Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And um, as, it, as the passage goes on, we find um, here this angel Lord ministering to him, caring for him out in the wilderness um, as, he's, as he's there. And then we find in the book of Zechariah a few references to this. Uh, we find uh, Zechariah 1, this, uh, this angel of the Lord, um, it says, so the man was standing among the myrtle trees, answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. We'll get back to them a little bit later. And they answered, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth. So here we have these angels, okay, reporting. It says, we patrolled the earth. All the earth remains at rest. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord, propose how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? So here we have this conversation, very interesting, this conversation between the angel of the Lord and the Lord of hosts. And we have... Really the father-son conversation, kind of like a, a John 17 kind of conversation happening. Very similar to the questions that Jesus would ask in the Garden of Gethsemane when he would ask, how long? Is there another place? Is there another way uh, for the cup to pass? 
And then one of the most beautiful pictures is in Zechariah 3. Uh, this is um, a vision that Zechariah has of uh, uh, Joshua the high priest standing before the presence of the Lord. And he's there, and it says this, as they, he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. It's very similar to Job 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, in the context of the angel of the Lord, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I, 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 the angel speaking, have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. So here we have Jesus again speak. It's a very beautiful picture of being removed, the dirty garments being put on, pure uh, white garments of a good picture of redemption even there all the way back in Zechariah 3 of what Jesus would come come to do. All right. So those are just, I mean, there's more references, but those are kind of the majority of them you find in the Old Testament. Every one of them, I believe, is a reference to what we call the pre-incarnate Christ or a Christophany. When you get to the New Testament now, it changes. Like I said, it goes from a definite article to, you know, just to, to an, an angel of the Lord in the New Testament. And so you find them, you find an angel of the Lord show up in Matthew and Luke to make an announcement of Jesus' birth. Remember the, the, in, um, in Luke 2 with the shepherds out in the field, um, the, an angel of the Lord shows up for uh, Zechariah uh, to announce what's about to happen, also to Mary. And so we understand that those references, even at the resurrection, we find an angel of the Lord there at the tomb. These are obviously not references to Christ because he is alive. He is, he's already been incarnate. He's already taken on human flesh. So it shifts in the New Testament to uh, not a definite oracle, but to an, an angel of the Lord. It seems to indicate the ministry of the angels doing, doing more of that activity post uh, the incarnation of Christ. Okay? And I'll give you all the notes we have there too. Any questions on that? Excellent. Alright. What experience uh, did Jesus have with angels? What experience did Jesus have with angels? Well, we find uh, angels very active in the life and ministry of Jesus. They play an integral part in Christ's birth, life, ministry, teaching, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return. He, they are very much involved in the, every aspect of Jesus' life. And if you go back, and maybe after this class, you just kind of go back and read the Gospels, you, and just look for the angels, you'll, you'll be surprised how often uh, they show up, how often they're involved in some capacity of... Um, Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus clearly believed and experienced the reality of angels um, that he had. Let me give you a, a few of those. I got them in your in your um, outline there. First of all, his conception was announced um, by an angel, right? Matthew one uh, verse twenty. Uh, he considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord. There it is, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the dream. St. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So there we have uh, the news of um, conception. Then we have his birth was announced by angels, letter B. Uh, Luke 2, 9 through 10, this is out the shepherds in the field, right? And the choir shows up and begins to sing and, and announce the Jesus' birth and what had taken place. Uh, letter C there, his life was preserved by angels. Um, we see that in Matthew uh, 2, uh, verse 13, when they had departed, and ain't, there it is again, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Most likely, by the way, that, that when it says an angel of the Lord in the New Testament, it's probably going to be Michael or Gabriel, one of those two that kind of seem to take on key roles as deliverers of messages uh, in the New Testament. Especially Gabriel seems to take more of that role. 
Um, so this is the warning about them fleeing, right? And to uh, to go to Egypt and to uh, and to go there. And so we find angels are making that announcement, making sure Jesus is is safe. Uh, letter D. He was tempted uh, by a fallen angel. We we know that much. We saw that in. And we'll visit this much uh, next week. Matthew 4, 1, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by uh, the devil. And uh, letter E, he was uh, ministered to by, by angels after, after great temptation. During that same passage in chapter 4, verse 11, the devil left him. Behold, angels came, plural, and were ministering to him in that way. Also, if you just look at his, if you just look at his teachings, letter E, um, letter F there, his teachings are filled with references to angels. You just go through all the parables and go through uh, his, especially the Mount, um, the Olivet Discourse that he does there in, uh, in Matthew, those few chapters, 24, 25, 26, uh, 24, 25 area. He does a lot of references to um, two angels. We see that a uh, few of them here. Matthew 18.10, and we'll come back to this verse a little bit later. He says, See that you not despise one of these little ones. In context, it seems to be children. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Later on in Matthew, chapter 26, verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he would at once send me more than twelve legions of, of angels? And then uh, in the Gospel of Mark, found another reference here, Mark 13, 32, Concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And finally, one more reference, and there's lots of them, just give you a few. Luke 15.10, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So we just find it coming up over and over again in Jesus' teachings uh, in the Gospels. A letter G, experience the ministry of angels in Gethsemane. We find that in Luke 22, verse 43. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him there in the garden. Um, we find... Letter H, we find angels are present at his tomb following the, the resurrection. Again, every, every integral part of Jesus' ministry and life, we find angels appearing and showing up. Uh, we see that in Matthew 28, verse 2. says, a great earthquake, an angel of the Lord, there it is again, an angel. It's changed from the Old Testament, which was a definite article. Descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. That will be quite the sight. And then John 20, uh, verse 12, it says, Two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one, of his, one at the feet. Letter I, angels were, were present at his ascension. We see that uh, in Acts 1. Now, there's not a specific reference to the word angel, but we do find here two men stood by them in white robes. We're, we're by implication, uh, and the way Acts rolls out, and most likely that's angels that appear there. And say, men of Galilee, why do you stay looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so they're there at the, uh, at the ascension of Jesus. And then finally, we'll see him, that's Acts 1, sorry, 10 through, 10 through 11. Letter J, angels will accompany him in his return. And this is, there's a, a plethora of verses that deal with this issue. We'll just give you, I'll give you three of them. Uh, we find Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, uh, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, To grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
And so there's a lot of references to the angels appear coming with him um, upon his, his return. So they're an integral part of Jesus' life and ministry and teachings. Um, it's a very, very centered, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of activity going on in that way. Okay? All right. Number 15. How is Jesus superior to angels? Uh, for this, you can, um, you, if you have a Bible, you can look at it, but otherwise uh, I kind of have it uh, written there for you. Hebrews chapter 1, the whole premise of Hebrews 1 is this argument uh, that Jesus is superior uh, to angels. So we find that uh, it tells us that Jesus is superior to angels because he is creator. There's three reasons. He is worshipped and he is sovereign. I remember back last week we talked about this, that the, the, the pop culture Judaism at the time, believed that God was so holy and so separate from mankind, it was impossible for man to get to God, but angels could kind of intervene or almost be, in, um, um, be a mediator between God and man. It could be these angels who would take the prayers of people to God and kind of mediate that process. That's what they had come to, to believe uh, in Judaism at the time. So that's why Hebrews 1, which is addressed, obviously, it's called Hebrews, to a Jewish audience, is to argue right up front of Jesus' supremacy, the, the supremacy of Christ in Hebrews. The word, even the word supremacy is used 13 times in Hebrews. Um, it's only used 19 times in the entire New Testament. So 13 times in Hebrews tells you, ah, this is probably talking about Jesus is superior than everything else. And that's what he does, right? He argues, he takes everything from the Old Testament and goes, yep, Jesus is greater than that. Jesus is great. All that pointed to him. So the first chapter, it just tells us about, about angels. So, letter A there, we have angels are created, but Jesus is his creator. So, this is, this is where he goes uh, for his argument. We find, uh, the first verse we'll look at here is, is Hebrews 1.7 of the angels. He says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, the, the author of Hebrews is going to reference seven different Old Testament passages to prove his point. He's just basically, throughout the letter, is going to tell, almost tell him, like, look, I'm not making this up. Here's what, the, here's what the Old Testament says, and he kind of keeps bringing it up. Here he goes to Psalm 104, is where this quote comes from, from Psalm 104. And he shows that angels, are, they aren't just, just servants, as is what part of this verse means, but also they are created beings. Um, they are like winds and bolts of lightning. If you go back and read Job 38, uh, 39, 40, 41, you find these kind of things. They're all obedient unto God, right? He calls them out, they go forward. That's what these are. Um, they also, another description here is they serve God in might. They are as forceful as the wind, destructive as a streak of, uh, a streak of lightning. But, again, Jesus is not created. That's what he's going to argue in this passage. He is actually a king who is the creator. So he goes to now two other passages in the Old Testament. Hebrews is a hard one to follow because he's bouncing all over the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 is where he jumps to. And uh, that's what verse 5 is. Hebrews 1.5 is a reference to two different passages. One is Psalm 2, one is 2 Samuel 7. He says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So the writer here, and this, and this, follow along with the logic for a minute, because I think it's fascinating to, to put it all together in an image, shows that here Jesus is the king, he's, and he's not created as king, but the, the argument here is he's installed as king, is really what the word means. Um, he quotes part of Psalm 2 here, and if you know Psalm 2, if you're familiar with it, it's an installation psalm. It's a psalm of being installed as, as king. That's what it's all about. It's about, it's about Jesus as king. 
And the context is God's response to rebellious people, right, nations, and uh, against his rule, they don't want his authority, right? And he says, well, I'm going to install a king, is what he says. And, um, and it's interesting, the word here, um, when it says begotten, uh, a lot of times that word can be mis misunderstood or misdefined. That's um, the word, it's better you can put the word installed in there. It's really what the word means. Um, today I have installed you, is really the idea of the language. Um, the word is talking about uniqueness or primacy or importance. Um, and so the question is, when was Jesus installed as king? The context of Psalm 2 is a coronation service or crowning. And when God says, today I have installed you, he is speaking of Christ's post-ascension, when he went back. So what Hebrews does, which is why Hebrews is so fascinating, a lot of Hebrews focuses on the exaltation of Christ, like what took place when he went back, um, when he ascended in Acts, you know, Acts 1, like what went on? Hebrews gives us insights into that, into that uh, situation. And so he describes how Jesus was, he ascended back, he was exalted in the presence of God, and now he gets the entire world as his inheritance. The following verses is in context. Just take that first half of Hebrews 1.5, where it says, You are my son today, I have installed you. That next verse in Psalm, uh, chapter 2, 7 8, says, I will tell a decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son today, I have begotten you or installed you. And then it says, Ask of me, I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. So basically what the Father is saying to the Son is like, You have, you have returned, you have been victorious, I... I crown you, as it were, as king, and you may ask me what you want. You want the nations, all these people who are giving us a hard time or who are bucking our authority? You want them? You can have them, right? <laughs> um, it's really interesting. That's exactly what Jesus got as post-resurrection. If you go to Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, it says that Jesus uh, found uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Therefore, in light of his death, Right? God highly exalted him, and as a result, what did he do? Bestowed on him a name, as above every name, so the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, that's a king context, in heaven and earth and on the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is all that, that's what Psalm 2 and Hebrews 1 is talking about, Jesus was exalted um, as, as king. And so you put it all together, Hebrews 1.5 should read something like this. Um, the Father speaking to the Son. You, Jesus, are my Son. Today, with your ascension back to heaven, with me, the Father, I give you a seat at my right hand, which he gets, and install you as king over all the earth. It's all yours. Do with it what you will. Um, and so the angels, what he's arguing, those angels are created. They have none of that authority. They haven't been given any of that. They just serve him. He is king. That's the argument that he's making. Okay? Another argument he makes is that angels worship, but Jesus is worshipped. Um, the author goes on to tell us that angels have a very specific job to do, and that is they need to worship Jesus. <laughs> it's kind of hard to be, um, to be on par with an angel when an angel is told to worship you, right? And so that's his argument of his, his supremacy to that. And he goes back to Psalm 97 now. Psalm 97, uh, and that's what Hebrews 1, 6 is. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, the word worship is a beautiful word. It's a, a combo word. It's two separate words. It means towards and kiss. Right? Let them worship. Come towards and kiss. That's the idea, idea of the language. And all the angels come forward uh, to him. It's the idea of moving towards someone in reverent affection. It's uh, the idea of attributing worth and value uh, to that. That is what angels do, and they've always done, right? 
Um, they worshipped him when he stepped off his throne to be born. They went into the countryside, right, and announced his birth had taken place. And here in our context, again, he's going back again to the ascension, what took place after Jesus walked into heaven. You ever wondered that? Like, what happened, right, when he went up in a cloud? Like, what took place after that? That's what Hebrews is talking about. So when it says here, he brings, he brings the firstborn into the world, it literally, he, he brought into, is that the, the world to come? It says the, it brings the firstborn into the world to come, is that the language? Sometimes the, the, the English is not as good. Into the world to come, the future. And so he's actually speaking of after his resurrection. The word um, brings firstborn into also is the same language used in the Old Testament to refer to the people of Exodus being brought out, um, out of Exodus, out of, the, uh, out of Egypt. And so the picture is that Jesus ascended into, into heaven to the presence of God. The Father announced his son's return, basically, and says, he brings him into the world and says, let all God's angels worship him. So he comes in, he's exalted as king, he's at the right hand, he's, he's, he's given that role. He tells all the angels, now, okay, my son is back, almost like he makes an announcement. Um, it's almost like a, it's like a homecoming game at basketball. You know, you bring, the seniors, you bring the seniors out and you announce them as they go out. That's kind of the idea. They kind of walked into, into the presence of God. He announced to all the angels that he's here, uh, and all the angels worship him. Uh, they all uh, give, as it were, a standing ovation that Jesus has conquered, he has won, he is victorious. It's a real beautiful images. Lastly, uh, angels serve, but Jesus is sovereign. This is really the ultimate point of Hebrews 1. In all these Old Testament verses, Jesus is king and angels serve their king. Um, the angel's destiny is to serve, Christ's destiny is to reign. And he reigns because he died and because he rose again, which no angel can lay claim to. They can't lay claim to his eternality or his power, his beauty, his glory, and not to his throne. So he goes to verse, look at verse 14 here, uh, when we looked at it a few times last week. He says here that there, are they not all ministering spirits out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So here are these ministering spirits are references to angels uh, within context. And the idea is that they're busy. It's a present tense word, right? We talked about that word serve as the word we get the word deacon. It's, a, it's the idea of service. And it's perpetually being sent out by God um, to, to do a task. They take orders, they go out, they complete their task, they return back again, get a new task, and there's this idea of almost like just kind of going in and out, all right? Constantly getting orders and getting things they need to do. And their particular ministry here is, it, is to serve those who will inherit salvation. This is speaking of, of God's people, God's elect. This is actually, again, fascinating. Angels are, are God's agents to tangibly serve his children. And again, when angels are put in the right perspective, they're fascinating, right? And you can praise God for them. Uh, but when they're exalted above Jesus, now we, gotta, we have a problem, right? And that's what Hebrews is doing, putting them in the right spot. Um, as I said last week, this means the universe is filled with helpers. Um, Jesus wants you to be encouraged, right? Be hopeful. That's why the chapter ends with this promise in chapter 1. And, uh, and so they're there to serve. Um, and so God is, and it's interesting, God is not just sovereign, Right, so he talks about this chapter, but he's also he sent out or dispatched angels to minister to us. He didn't have to do that; he could just do it. But he created these beings to to serve him and to serve us in that way. He goes on, uh, verses eight and nine, going back a few verses. Hebrews one, he goes back to argue that he is he is the creator and the only king who bridged the gap between God and man. He says, "Your throne, O God, is forever and ever." This is speaking of the Son. 
scepter of upright, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And we're going back again to the scene, back to the ascension, back to what, what happened after he, and he keeps adding on all these other pictures and words. And so he reaches back here. This is from Psalm 45 now. Um, so I said, it makes Hebrews interesting. You've got to constantly flip back to the Old Testament over and over again to find where he's getting some of this stuff. And so here he, he shows that, um, that, the, that the king, he's talked about this, his context is none other than, than Jesus, the son. In other words, he is dispatching angels. It's actually Jesus doing this. Um, now I love he talks about the joy of the father here, the, the oil of gladness. Um, the idea um, is, again, the joy of the father over the son. Uh, we, we heard about that a few times in the Gospels, right? Remember at his baptism, the father says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well, whom I'm well pleased. Right? In Mount Transfiguration, he says the same thing. And so here it's like he comes back into the presence of the Father and he announces his, uh, his victory and he is uh, excited about his, um, his accomplishments and what he has done. And so the whole, putting all the, word, all the verses together, we find Jesus' arrival back to heaven. The Father announces his arrival. The angels, as it were, give a standing ovation. They move forward in affection. Um, Jesus sends his throne. The Father anoints him, here it says, with a smile on his face. He anoints him uh, with oil. And he's welcomed home victorious. This is what Jesus was anticipating. So later on, when Hebrews 12.2 says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, it was more than you and me. Okay? It was the joy, and that was part of it. I mean, go, we can go to Isaiah and say that we definitely were, were on his mind. That's, that's accurate. But Hebrews is arguing more for his, the joy set before him was to get back there, to be back in the presence of the Father, to go through victoriously and come back and be with him. That's what he's, he's arguing for. Any questions on that? That's kind of a quick overview of Hebrews 1. There's a lot in Hebrews 1. Um, I'm going to preach Hebrews next year, I think, so we'll kind of go through that in more detail. But it's my favorite book. I love it. All right, number 16. What do angels do? All right, what do they do? All right, lots of things that they do in Scripture. Let's look at some of these. Uh, some of them we've kind of uh, looked at a little bit already. Uh, one, uh, letter A there, is uh, they rejoice. We find them in Job 38, right? They're rejoicing at God's creation. Uh, we find that in Job 38, 6-7. They were there singing together, shouting for joy together. The morning stars, sons of God, are uh, probably uh, synonyms or parallelism in the Old Testament Hebrew. And so references to angels there. And so we see a lot of their activity um, in serving the saints, being dispatched by God for assignment. But when we read about them in the Old, in the Old Testament, anywhere in passages, they're they're not just sent out as ministering spirits uh, serving us, uh, like Hebrews 1.13 says. They're not doing that like, and I don't if you work for UPS or FedEx, I'm not, I'm not down to UPS for a second, but it's not like your unhappy, unhappy FedEx guy who's delivering like your 12th Amazon package of the day, you know, and comes in, here's your box, you know. That's not what they're, they're not that. They're exuberant. They're excited to serve you. They're excited to serve God. And so they, they're doing this with joy. They're not doing it with sadness or burden or anything like that. Imagine that. I mean, they're just excited. Get in the presence of God. What you got for me? What's the next assignment? All right, I'm out. They come out. Next one. What do you got for me? All right. And they're just doing this all the time. That's what Hebrews is arguing for. Constantly serving God, getting dispatched, coming to us, serving us, going back for a new assignment. And so they're exuberant in that way. That's why in Hebrews 12, uh, verse 22, this is that. We talked about this last week now. This is going back to that already not yet reality that Hebrews and uh, Paul would do this a lot of times too 
Um, he'll talk about how we are already in the presence of God, but not yet, kind of idea. And so here he says, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. This is kind of the presence of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to, here it is, innumerable angels in festal gathering. Beautiful language, all right? So the idea of the word, uh, this festal, festal gathering, it's actually a, a revelry, a noisy celebration. The word was usually used within the, within the Roman culture, was used as parties and festivities they would hold around the games, the Olympic games that they would do. These are the kind of celebrations. You've seen the Olympics on there. You've seen the, the big celebrations or the opening ceremonies or closing ceremonies. That, that kind of idea is what the language is talking about. That's how it's used in the Roman world. And so here we find these, these, um, these angels. I mean, they're, they're serving God, and they're just they're in festival gatherings. It's like they got party hats on or something. I don't know. You know, they're little horn things. I mean, they're just really excited. They're just excited to serve God. I mean, I just want you to get that picture, that they're exuberant. They're excited to see Christ exalted back uh, into, into the throne room of God, and they're just excited to serve in that way. That's why we see also in Luke 15.10, again, joy before the angels of God over one sinner. Who repents. Isn't that interesting? That it doesn't just say before the angels of God over sinners who repent. I mean, that would that sounds similar, but notice that's very different, isn't it? It's not just oh, oh, hey, a bunch of people got saved, sweet, you know, and they're all like, yeah, and they got their party hats on. It's over one. So the idea of the language is that each one, every time there's someone who converts to converts to Christ. Angels have like a little party like going on up there. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, the language is just fun. Um, we'll just be there, just watch it happen. You know, it's like every three seconds or something. Um, all right, B, worship. We've already seen how angels, some angels just kind of stay put, right? They kind of stay put in the presence of God. Uh, their task is to worship uh, without ceasing. Uh, we find quite a few references to this. We find in Psalm 103, Verse 20, the command, bless the Lord, O you his angels. Right? This is part of their job, uh, is to adore him. In Isaiah 6, 3, we find that with uh, Isaiah, we hear the angels crying out, Holy, 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 the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So there they are, again, adoring, acknowledging uh, the attribute of God as holy. We find the same angels again, 750 years later in Revelation 4, 8. Saying the same thing, never cease to say, holy, 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 right? They just keep talking about how, how holy God is. And it's not, by the way, I've said this to you before, when you read the word holy, sometimes you maybe just two sides of a different, of a coin, right? So one side, we always, when you hear holy, you immediately think, not simple, not simple, not simple, which is true, right? But flip the coin over, what that means, positively, on the positive side of things, is means absolutely stunning, beautiful, without blemish, there's nothing wrong with him. Right? So that's what they're saying. They're not just saying, oh, he's never done anything wrong. That's, that's not all that they're saying. They're saying you're just absolutely without blemish. There's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing unattractive about God to the angels. Everything is beautiful. Everything is perfect. That's, that's what they're saying. So it's a positive side of that word holy as well. Uh, Revelation 5, um, 11 and 12 says they, they, uh, they're around the throne, they're singing, Worthy as a lamb who is slain, receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So the angels are, are adoring Christ for what he had done um, and what he had come to do. All right, C, guard. Um, this is, uh, we find this early on in Genesis, right? After the fall of man, what happened? Uh, they got kicked out of the garden, and what did God do? He put cherubim, right? And he 
big flaming sword. Someone told me it was the first lightsaber um, you know, to guard to guard the angels. Hey, we'll see. We'll see if it was a lightsaber. I don't know. Um, but we can imagine, I mean, that, that scene, that's, uh, sorry, Genesis 3.24. So they were there, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So you find these angels being put in place by God to, to guard and protect um, even actually it's a very loving thing by the way you realize that right sometimes you think like the banishment from the garden is a very unloving thing of God to do it's actually very loving because in their current state to eat of the tree that would have them perpetually live would actually keep them in the state of separation from God he had to kind of the, the Jesus storybook Bible the kids Bible does a great job with this actually said God had to send them out to go rescue them right he had to get them out of the garden to go rescue them and bring them to himself and so that's what these angels are guarding the presence keeping them out it's very good. It's very possible. You can imagine Adam bringing his children, you know, to see. Hey, look, here's here's what happened. And <laughs> I mean, it's very possible they walked over there and could still see it and still explain that even to his children. Uh, letter D, uh, they visit. Um, I realize when I say the word visit that in the in this culture, at least my my wife's family, when they say the word visit, they mean have like a little conversation with family and sit down at a dinner table. Do you guys use the word that way? We need to visit. Let's visit, right? I never used that phrase before. My wife's family's from Minnesota, and they always talk about visiting. And I'm always thinking, where are we going? You know, and I don't know. So these, um, we find angels sent by God to visit with particular human beings. We first one we find that, again, Genesis 18, three angels um, appear there to tell Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a baby, right? They're old age. We also find them in the accounts of Jesus' birth in Luke and Matthew. They visit Mary, they visit Joseph, they visit Zechariah. We find them in the book of Daniel and Acts. Uh, there's a lot of interesting spots in there where they, uh, they even come in response to, to prayer. Listen to this. This is interesting. Daniel 10, 12. Uh, then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, this is the angel that shows up. From the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. God sent this angel, in response, Daniel's prayers, right? Interesting. Uh, similar uh, idea, Acts 10, we even find just kind of even just, just the integrity of man here, Cornelius. It says here, the angel of God uh, came to him and, and said to him, Cornelius, and he stared, <laughs> stared at him in terror, and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter, and that's um, part of that context of, of going to get Peter. All right, they, uh, letter E, they communicate. They communicate. One of the most interesting things, if you read the account of the Ten Commandments in the narrative portions of the Old Testament in the, in the Pentateuch, you don't find any references to angels there with the Ten Commandments, but there's multiple references outside of that of other authors giving commentary on the fact that the deliverer of the law, of the Ten Commandments, was none other than angels. They actually brought it. Uh, there's, there's lots of uh, comments about this. We find P, um, Stephen in Acts 7. He said, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai. He's in the context, he's talking about Moses. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. These are speaking of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. There the angels uh, were with him. He says that in the same chapter, verse 53, he received the law as delivered by angels. Right? He had this, this commandment. These, these stone tablets were delivered uh, by the angels. Uh, Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come 
to whom the promise had been made, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, right? So we find them as a, and this is, this is where it gets interesting, right? So this is, we talked about earlier on, we talked about one of the dangers with studying angels is that angels have been very much in, in demonic form, we'll talk about that uh, next week, to bring revelation, right, um, to people. Think about the whole Mormon, you know, theology, right? Think about the whole angel Moroni. This is, it sounds similar, doesn't it? The angels delivered revelation, uh, and so we find that there's, again, Satan is always using things or subtly twisting things that were, yeah, there was accuracy. There was angels who helped deliver revelation um, in the Bible at times. Um, uh, another reference, Hebrews 2, verse 2 says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, every transgression and disobedience received a just retribution. So he's just kind of taking it for granted that they understand that the message was declared uh, the law through uh, by angels. Okay, we also find uh, throughout Scripture angels they they serve to deliver other messages um, to God uh, from from God to people. Uh, sometimes this message is of comfort. Sometimes the message is of, for instruction. Sometimes the message is for judgment. Right, and there's different references for this. Uh, the Book of Revelation. Uh, John starts it off by telling us. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So a lot of the Reve book of Revelation is John dialoguing with, with an angel who's given him the information. Uh, there's times where he, he comes face to face with the person of Christ, like in chapter 1. But a lot of times the dialogue is with, with an angel. We know that because he, he bows down to him twice and the angel's like, stop, I'm not God, worship God, don't, don't worship me. Uh, chapter 17, uh, verse 1, says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. So here we have the seven angels who had seven bowls, right? Um, they're bringing judgment throughout Revelation. You can read about that. Also, uh, earlier on in Genesis 19, uh, when, when Lot had the angels come to him, it says, We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us. To destroy it. So the, clearly, there is a there is a declaration of of, uh, of judgment that the angels do send as well. All right, clarify. Occasionally, angels come to clarify instructions, set matters straight uh, for God's people, so they know what they need to do or need to know. This is uh, Daniel eight uh, verses sixteen and seventeen. He said, "I heard a man's voice between the banks." And they called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. <laughs> so he's, he's calling on, the, one angel's calling on Gabriel, like, can you clarify this to him? Can you help him understand it? He came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. So there, there the angel came to clarify the message. Same book, chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. He says, make me understand. Uh, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come um, out to give you insight and understanding. Again, of your pleas for mercy, I, a word was, went out, and I have come to tell you it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Right? So they're there to clarify uh, what they are to know. We see this in the, in the birth of Christ. Uh, when it came to Joseph, remember, and he was going to divorce Mary, and the angel said to, appeared and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1, 19-20. So they were able to clarify and make sure he understood what he needed to do, which was different than what he was thinking he was going to do. All right? Fight. 
That's the one you wanted, right? That's the one you're like, yay, I like that one. Um, lightsabers and everything. No. Um, it's fascinating that, that there are times in the Bible where God, and God does this with, with different doctrines as well. There are times in the Bible where God kind of pulls back the curtain for a moment and lets us see behind the scenes, as it were. Um, many of you, when we have these conversations about you know God's sovereignty and salvation and stuff, it's like the, those are just passages, almost like just pull the curtain back to see what's going on behind the scenes um, in those places. And the same with angels we see here. There's times where God um, helps us see what's going on in a world that is right around us that we just we, we don't normally see. In the in the, one of my favorites is the Second Kings, uh, chapter six, Second Kings six, uh, fifteen through nineteen. Um, this is, uh, the context here is a king of Syria has, uh, has taken his army, he surrounded Elisha and his servant. Now, the king is mad, if you look at the context, he's angry because he says, you know, Elisha, you've been telling, you've been telling the Jewish leaders, the, you know, the army commanders and stuff, you've been telling them what I've been saying in my bedroom. You know, you've been telling them what I've been saying behind closed doors. Like, you know, how, I don't know how you know this, but basically you're telling you, on me. I don't like it, so I'm going I'm to squash you. I'm going to take you out. He surrounds the place. Um, the servant of Elisha gets up that morning, kind of steps out the door, you know, and has his cup of coffee or something, and he kind of looks around. He's like, oh, you know, it's surrounded by this massive Syrian army. And so it says here, the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning, went out. An army with horses and chariots was all around the city. So he's completely surrounded. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Elisha speaking, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I'm sure at that moment he's kind of scratching his head and going, you know, are you sure? I'm looking around. I don't think there's anybody here. No one's flying our flag here, right? I mean, he says, um, so Elisha prayed, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And so the Lord opened his eyes of the young man and he saw. Well, he, obviously he saw before, but now he sees a, a different sea, right? He sees differently. He saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots. That's very interesting. Very similar to what the king of Assyria had. Um, but these are horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed uh, to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha said to them, This is not the way. I don't know if you ever read this context. It's hilarious. You know, they all are there, and now all of a sudden they're all blind. Elisha walks up. I guess they've never spoke to him, so they don't know his voice. He's like, ah, you guys are in the wrong spot. Let me lead you to this Elisha guy, right? He kinda, and he literally leads them back to Syria. They, they can't see, so they're just following him. And then, and then he leaves, and God opens their eyes, and boom, they're back in Syria. And they're like, what? Um, it's a really interesting passage. Anyway. Uh, then in Daniel, we also get some insight, right? The book of Daniel gives us some glimpses of what's going on behind the scenes. Uh, there's this, what would you call it, like an invisible realm around you um, that we can't even see what's going on. Uh, we discover that there is references to a prince of Persia, a prince of Greece, kings of Persia. They're battling, they're hindering. Uh, these kings are hindering angels from delivering messages to Daniel. He has to call on another angel to come help him. He's delayed by so many days. Uh, it's very interesting um, uh, references. So Daniel uh, ten thirteen, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief priests, princes, uh, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And we understand, and we'll get to this when we get to kind of uh, demons as well, that this was some sort of holy angel versus 
fallen angel activity fighting going on. Okay, there was some kind of war um, taking place, a resistance. Uh, same chapter, uh, verses 20 and 21. He said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And again, we understand that's not a literal, physical prince of Persia. Prince is a reference. Uh, Michael is actually called a prince as well. It's an interchangeable term for either fallen or elect angels. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. And I, but I will tell, him, tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except the, against these except Michael, your prince. See, there is a phrase used for him as well. It's an, it's an angelic term. Um, and so, and finally, in uh, in Revelation, we get uh, we get some insight as well. There's this reference in <laughs> in Revelation 12, 7 through eight, that we find that some kind of war has taken place previous um, in, in in history. Right? It says, now a war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. There's no longer any place for them in heaven. So this, we understand, is probably a reference to what took place, right? There's, there's, I told you there's not a, a very explicit teaching on the fall of Satan and how that took place. But there's a lot of references that kind of give us almost like puzzle pieces to kind of put together. This is one of them. That some kind of war took place, some kind of resistance took place. Um, he rebelled against God and was no longer a place for him uh, in heaven. And so we find those references of some sort of battle going on. We find that Michael here and his angels, so we find Michael's like I don't know, the general with his other angel troops, right? And so they kind of report to him he, he sends them out and, and works with them. Another interesting um, reference is to this idea of patrol. So if you're a police officer you'll like this one. They're angelic police officers. Um, we find in the book of Zechariah, these guys um, we find um, a few, a few passages indicate, along with Daniel, that angels are sent out on a kind of patrol of the earth. Uh, Zechariah seems to make this explicit. And Job says, by the way, remember Job says that Satan went about the earth and came back to report along with the other angels. So the implication is probably that they're all kind of patrolling, looking around. Um, and so we find this reference this is interesting. Zechariah 1, 10 through 11, the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, and this is an, an angel speaking in, so the man is an angel. These are they, so he's, he's giving him an explanation. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth. Behold, all the earth remains at rest. Are these angels are kind of patrolling. I don't know if they have sirens or not, but they're, they're patrolling. They're going around. Um, again, very similar references to Job. It says the sons of God, again, can be both a demonic reference or a, or a holy angel reference, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came, um, came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. I'm not sure what the walking up and down on it part means, but he was moving around, all right? Okay, uh, I, letter I, attack. Uh, we have noted how angels are called to obey what God has given them to do. One of the roles God has given them is to carry out judgment, to literally carry it out. We saw that in Genesis 19, right, that they were called to, to bring judgment and destroy uh, that city. Um, we find in, um, in Exodus an angel, a specific angel, given the title of the destroyer. And it says here, the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the door, two doorposts, the Lord will pass over. So when we get the Passover celebration comes from this passage, and uh, and will not allow the destroyer to enter 
your house is to strike you. So here is this destroyer is some reference uh, to an angel carrying out uh, this judgment. In Acts, uh, we find this, remember we talked about an angel of the Lord, um, Acts 12, this one's a pretty cool reference actually, uh, verse 23, remember he's there and Herod's like, they, they cry out and they're like, oh, the voice of God and not a man, right? And apparently he puffs up, receives it, applauds himself, I don't know what he does, but it says here, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give, uh, give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Pretty strong, right? Um, in Revelation, we also find references to, to angels as being angels, even like there's death, there's Hades, seem to be references to uh, two angelic beings who are being used to, to carry out judgment as God has given them to do that. It says here they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence, the wild beasts of the earth. And again, later on in Revelation, we see the seven bowls, the seven trumpets. They are the ones who are delivering those. They're the ones who are, who are delivering those judgments um, in the book of Revelation. That would be, sorry, that references Revelation 6, 8. And the next one is Revelation 8, 6. So just invert those numbers. Um, there are seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And then Revelation 16, 1. Um, we find the, the angels there go out and pour on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So they have been tasked to, to go out and attack and to bring judgment as God declares them to do so. Okay? All right. Jay, collect, yes. Do, do all angels currently have the capability of sinning? Capability of what? Of sinning, like Lucifer. Sinning. I thought you said sitting. I'm like, I guess they can sit down if they want. I was trying to figure where you were going with that question. <laughs> yeah, we, we dealt with that last week. We talked about the idea that um, that there seems to be from, there's not a, a clear verse that tells us that, but you take a couple of verses and then the implication is that is that there is no longer ability to fall, that there seems to be sealed in their destiny or their choices that have been made, and there is no more falling taking place and we're sinning taking place among the, the holy angels there we call the elect angels holy angels um, and again we talked about last week that the idea if you flip that over and go like what if they could what does that mean um, all the references to angels um, are that, that have fallen are all going to be uh, judgment oriented uh, there's no redemption there's no bringing them back there's no um, so it seems kind of the silence seems to speak to the fact that it no longer happens, I guess, would be our, my argument. Um, Jay, collect. All right, so in Jesus' parable of the uh, seed and the sower in Matthew 13, there are descriptions given in that story. Uh, we discover the farmer is described as being Jesus, the field is the world, the wheat is the Christians, the tares are the unbelievers who are from the enemy, who is the devil. And he says the harvest time is when Jesus is going to return, and the reapers are... Angels, they're the ones who are gathering, okay? Um, and thus they are the ones who gather God's people um, and bring them home upon Jesus' return. So here it is, Matthew 13, 39 through 40. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. This is the harvest is the end of the age. Reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned in fire, so will it be at the end of the age. They are, they are reapers. We find the same chapter, verse 49 through 50. So the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's that judgment aspect as well. Angelic beings are used for that. And then chapter 24, 
verse 31 of Matthew, says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. So they're, they're gathering them up, right, and bringing them home, uh, or bringing them back when, upon Jesus' return. We also have an account of uh, them being gathered up uh, with the angels upon Jesus' descent, right, in heaven, from heaven, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and the voice uh, of an archangel with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we'll always be with the Lord. Another interesting reference, and this is one reference, but, um, but I think it's a, a, a one of the things you want to be weary of in, in Scripture whenever you, you base a, a theological idea or, or a, um, um, a theological position off of one verse. You always want to kind of... But this is interesting. Is in uh, Luke 16 seems to imply that, um, um, that there are angels that play a part in delivering or bringing us. You say when you die, we're immediately in the presence of the Lord, as 2 Corinthians 5 will tell us. But there seems to be some angelic, you know, carrying um, of you. Obviously, your body stays behind, but you, as a, as a person, goes into the presence of God. How does that take place? Would Luke seems to indicate that maybe that maybe it is. Maybe there's angels here that uh, at least it happened in this situation. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham's side reference to God's presence. The rich man also died and was buried. And so we find that maybe they, they play a part in that. There's a, um, there's a biography I read a few years ago. It's called... Um, Spirit of the Rainforest, and what it is is a, it's a docu it's a, not a documentary because uh, it's not a film. Um, it's, a, it's a biography, and it goes through um, in the Amazon jungle this tribe where many of them they were fighting with each other, and many of them were killing each other, and and the gospel kind of gets in there, and people people get saved, and people in the tribe get saved. So it's a, it's a fascinating kind of story with that. One of the parts of the story that I read. Um, there was those villagers who had converted uh, to Christianity, and this villager was dying by being, uh, he was attacked by another, another villager, right, from another, another spot. And uh, as he's dying, he gives the following account. Here's what he says. He says, um, as he's lying there, he says, I'm a child of Jesus. Now, as you can see, all around you, his people have come here to take me home. So I'm going with them now. I just want to say before I go that I don't want any of you to even think about taking revenge. The other villagers said, there's no one here to take you. You're going to be fine. He was shocked. Can't you see these people? They're standing all around here waiting for me to finish talking to you. <laughs> Everyone stared at him and shook their heads. I can't believe you can't see them. Look, right there. But no one saw anything. Open your eyes. Can't you see them? But they just stared at him with sad faces and shook their heads. Well, well they are here for me, and I'm going with them to Jesus. We, we won't need revenge where I am going, so please don't take any here. And he curled up and he, he died. Right? So it's very interesting kind of stories like that of them ready to take, take people into the presence of God. Okay. Attend. Attend. This is, uh, there seems to be some general references of, uh, of angels um, attending to us, watching after us. This is where we get into this whole conversation about guardian angels for a moment. Um, and so we'll look at that. But there seems to be angels that do watch over us. Um, and even, I'll even argue, that even the, the specific angels that are used to watch over churches um, that Jesus plants. And so we'll look at that. First, Matthew 18. All right, Matthew 18.10 is our first reference. It says here, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. Context of Matthew 18 makes it pretty clear. And some people argue, like, is little ones Christians in general, or is it children? Um, the context seems to be children. Okay, that's what's happening in, in, in that chapter. 
I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, this is, language is interesting. So the ancient, it was an ancient custom at the time in the Eastern court settings where those who, quote, stood before the king or were allowed to see his face were officers who also enjoyed uh, the king's uh, favor, were privileged to be in close fellowship with him. And so the implication here is that there are these high-ranking angels who are assigned and commissioned by God to watch over little ones. Right? Um, most likely, again, it references the children. And so Jesus is saying, don't despise children, for they are so highly regarded by God that the, uh, he has appointed those most illustrious angels to keep watch over them. And the idea of them seeing his face is maybe a reference to their continual presences for quick response. Right? They're right there, they're ready to go at any moment where that is, that is taking place. Um, interesting, right? This is kind of part of this whole study. It's just interesting. I don't know what to do with that. I, didn't say. I did always wonder, by the way, if you had children before, my little ones, you know, they would just talk and laugh and in their room, you know, at the wall. And you're like, what in the world are they? I wonder if they could see, you know, and <laughs> that you get older, you can't. But I just wonder if God at least lets them see at times. We always thought that, but I, have, I can't, can't give you that as a fact. Um, also in Daniel, we find uh, references to, again, Michael, who is an angel given charge over certain people, uh, implies some angelic responsibility um, as watching over God's people. This is Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. So there's some kind of authority, some kind of oversight um, taking place there. Um, as for, again, the specific guardian angels of each person. And my wife told me, she's like, I want a guardian angel, so it's just going to be that way. And I was like, okay. Okay, honey, you, you can have your guardian angel. You're fine. Um, we won't argue with you. But the Bible doesn't explicitly state that we have a specific one. Um, but, as I told you before, I think it implies a little more. I think the language, you put all the verses together, it seems to imply, to use football analogy, that they kind of play like a zone coverage, right? There's like multiple of them watching after um, certain areas and places. I, th I think this is part of what Hebrews 1, 14 talks about. Again, they're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are near salvation. Some implication to that. Um, also, there is an interesting part is in the book of Revelation. You may differ with me on this one. I've already had a conversation with one person about this passage. But Revelations is, Revelations is a hard book to, to interpret. Let's just, this is laid out on the table for a moment. Um, and it does have the most references to angels of any, any book uh, in the Bible, and so it's an important book to go to. You find as Revelation opens up, at the beginning of the book, we have statements about angels pertaining to churches, right? Revelation 2, Revelation 3, right to the angels of the churches, da, da, da. All right, so there's been a lot of trees have died over what in the world that means, okay? Um, so I'm going to kill another one. I just killed it right there in your hand, all right? <laughs> All right, so here's, here's one of the references. So we have the Revelation 120. Uh, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here are angels of seven churches. All right, and then it goes on to describe each church, you know, it talks about an angel over them. So uh, a few, few ideas, okay, about it. Um, some people interpret it and say the word angel is actually the word messenger, and some people say the word angel there in that context just means pastor, right? So it's the pastor of the church, right, this. Uh, the problem with that is really twofold. One, 
Um, there was no, um, at that time at least, not, in, not until probably about 130, 140, did, was there a single pastor kind of led church at that point. There was a plurality of, of, of leaders and pastors at that point, um, as you can go throughout the, the pastoral epistles. So that wasn't even happening at the time. The other thing, the most important part, is the word angel in the book of Revelation, whenever it's used 70 plus times, always means an angelic being. So it would be odd for John to write and use the word angel to mean a pastor when he could have just used that word. And obviously he wrote, he wrote for a second, third John, he made those references. So why, did he, why would he do that? That doesn't make, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense um, why he would do that. Another one, another argument is that people say it's some kind of prophet or some kind of delegated representative of the church, kind of like an ambassador or a secretary or something of the church. Uh, that doesn't seem to, to, to ring with me either. Um, mine, I, I, do, I believe, is just literally an angel. It's literally what it says. It does have some interpretive problems because it says, write to the angel of the church of, you know, um, Ephesus, you know, write to them this. It's like, why are they writing to angels to the churches, right? It can, so it kind of looks a little strange, and especially when it talks about rebuking them. You're like, well, what's, <laughs> what's going on there? Um, I think in chapter 1, verse 11, the letters are directed to the churches. So I think that's what all of them are going to, to the churches in general. And the Lord speaks to the whole church, not just to an angel. Um, but I think what's being implied by Revelation 2, Revelation 3, and Revelation 1, is that each church, as planted by God, is overseen by an angel. I think an angel is given oversight over that church and protection and all the things that we know about going on, the spiritual warfare side of things. And there are angels there, I think, given uh, to specific churches. So we, there's an angel of Bethesda. I don't know who he is, but, uh, but we got one, I believe. And so they are looking out uh, for the local churches. Um, <laughs> So there you go. He's a recording angel. He, yeah, just a recording angel. <laughs> um, so we find, uh, it seems to be consistent with other passages. So here we find in Deuteronomy 32.8, there's a reference here. It says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number, and here it says, of the sons of God. Now the Greek version of the Old Testament called the LXX translates that word angels, um, angelos. And so, so we find them being fixed according to a certain number of angels assigned to a certain number of people. Um, we also find consistent with uh, passages in Daniel of angels watching over certain nations, uh, as well as Jesus' references to angels again looking after little ones. Um, and it may be, you know, uh, this is my one verse I give to my wife and go like, here, honey, maybe this is it, um, that you have a specific guardian angel. Um, Acts twelve fifteen. maybe it's implied that they just understood that, right? Remember, this is when Peter was rescued out of prison. He comes knocking on the door, you know, They're like, hey, I'm here, you know, and they all run in. Hey, Peter's here. They're like, ah, it's his ghost, right? It says here, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. As if that was like more realistic than being Peter. That's what's... <laughs> it can't be Peter, but it could be an angel um, knocking at our door. But let's not go open it. Um, so, but it seems that maybe, you know, there seems to be implied there that maybe they just understood that, oh yeah, it's his angel. So there may be an, an angel for each person. Ah, could be, all right? Could be. But again, not explicitly stated um, in, the, in the New Testament. Okay? All right. Serve. We've seen this already. Uh, they've been dispatched by God to serve his, his people. Uh, we've seen that uh, him, them come to Jesus and serve him in Matthew. We've seen him in Hebrews 1 as well, uh, has, has come out to serve us. We see that in Matthew 4.11. Again, they were there to minister 
uh, to Jesus, and then Hebrews 1.14, they're there ministering to serve us, right? So ministering to serve Jesus, ministering to serve us. It's kind of their twofold kind of task and job. Again, similar language uh, to the Psalms that tell us that they, this is exactly what they do. Uh, we find Psalm 103, 20 and 21, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. Right? This is what they do. They go out and they, they do what it is that he tells them to do. And then Psalm 104, verse 4, again, they are called winds and flaming fire um, in those passages. And one thing is interesting, if you, if you go through, the, especially the gospel accounts and acts, and you just look at the references to angels, and you look at the context in which they show up, um, it's interesting that, that almost, and I, and I haven't found one not this way, so I can't, I can't be fully dogmatic on this statement, but I would be pretty dogmatic on it. They show up at times... Uh, in those places, for God's people at least, now they come to unbelievers like Herod and, you know, strike him down. That's one scene. But when it's the people of God, they come when there's suffering and brokenness. And when there's fear, that, that's when they show up. You just look at them. Go, go through the Gospels and Acts and find them. That's when they show up, right? Uh, we find them uh, at Jesus' temptation. We find them in the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, those are two very traumatic moments in their earthly life. Of Christ, we find them at, with Peter when he's in prison. We find them in Paul when he's at shipwreck uh, in in Acts. They show up at that point. They seem to be um, God seems to send them during pain as almost like an extension of His presence. Uh, seems to be implied uh, by the Gospels and by the Book of Acts. Um, you know, this has been argued too that this is possibly the case of why when you read about the accounts of martyrdom, you read people who have died for Christ and burned at the stake or crazy things happen and it's like they can go through it um, and it's seemingly with little pain or something. They kind of go through that and you're like, man, how did they go through that? That very possible that there was angelic presence to help them, you know, through such, through such events. Um, I remember the... Um, I was in. Uh, I went to went to Ecuador. You know the story of Jim Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, and those guys. And my wife and I went to Ecuador to visit that tribe. I had to be probably about 15 years ago, I think now. And um, we went went down there, and we, we down in the middle of the Amazon jungle. It took us forever to find them. It was like wow, they would it's like a little hopper plane, and you had to take canoes down the river in the Amazon. You had to hike for four hours to find them in the middle of the jungle. And we spent a week with them down there with uh, Steve Saint, who was Nate Saint's son. And um, and so we were we were there and we were there talking to one of the uh, one of the leaders of the church there right they they've come to Christ and they have a church there uh, unlike anything you've ever thought of when you think of church but um, uh, it's Amazon jungle style and uh, and so anyway Minkai was the guy and Minkai was one of the ones who speared and killed the missionaries and we were there it was a fascinating story as he was telling us through through interpreter there through Steve. Um, that when he was there, he had had uh, a few, about a, two years prior to that, he had, um, um, before we got there, Stephen Chris Chapman had come with the group, and I don't know if you remember, you know, he had some, some album he did that actually used their story and songs, if you're familiar with that at all. He had showed up about two years prior, and they were working on some stuff because they were doing a film and kind of doing a documentary, and he was using it for his concerts and things he did around, and Mikai traveled with him. I don't know if you ever went to any of his concerts when Mikai came, uh, but he was there, and he spoke at his, his concerts and stuff. Um, he Anyway, he, the whole point is he was there, and they were working on something, and they had some worship music playing, and they were saying to me, Kai just completely just got pale. And um, and he, he started to panic, and he goes, what's that, what's that sound? It was just a radio that they had, and they were playing something. 
And he, he grabbed it. He says, what is this? And they were talking about, oh, it's worship music. You know, so he goes, I've heard that before. And they're like, well, how in the world have you heard that before? You're in the middle of the jungle. There's no way you could hear this. Um, he said, the night, the day that I, when we were killing the missionaries, he said it was, he said it was, I heard, I heard that sound. I heard that music that you're playing. And he says it was like a million, he called them flashlights, because that's all he could think of. He said it was like a million flashlights were going off in the air as we were killing them. He said, I, I, I'd never, it was the first time I'd ever heard that. And now this is, you know, the second time I'd heard it. So it was just, it was very interesting of uh, just God's presence, even the angels that were present during, according to his testimony, during the time when they were killed, that the angels were even there uh, on that beach in the uh, Amazon jungle. Um, another one, um, protect. Um, specific ways angels are ministered to God's people uh, is to protect them. It doesn't always mean uh, protect them from harm or protect them from death. That's not... That's not what we imply by this, but there are times where uh, God does send them to intercept, uh, to bring protection. A prime example of this, in the Bible at least, would be in Daniel. Remember in the lion's den? Uh, the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May God, my God sent his angel and shut the mouth of the lions, uh, lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me. Right? And so there we have that angelic presence there to deliver and to protect. Uh, again, consistent with what the Psalms would say when they give descriptions about angels. We find Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, delivers them. That's probably, by the way, a reference to Christ, pre-incarnate Christ there. Um, we find in Psalm 91, 11 and 12, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On your hands they will bear you up. On their hands will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. That, now, this was such a, I mean, a foregone conclusion that the angels are going to protect and take care of and look after God's people. That remember, Satan used this. Remember Matthew four, Luke four, used this to go, hey, Jesus, just jump from jump from the top of the you know the temple. Just you know, they'll save you because <laughs> this is he was interpreting that uh, that way. All right, another one, deliver. Um, another way of angels and ministers through delivering, uh, we find this uh, again in the Psalms, especially in the book of Acts. Uh, we find an angel sent uh, to, to free um, the apostles there who had been arrested in Acts 5. Uh, they were, uh, the high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles, put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stay in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So even there in their presence, they had the deliverance actually sent them, repelled them out to go preach the gospel even more. And as we looked at earlier, it's also the case in Acts 12. We find the angel, angels again there uh, delivering Peter um, from, from the prison, Acts 12, 5-7. Letter P is a guide. Another air ministry of angels to God's people is that being of a guide um, guidance and counsel to God's people. The first one we find is Genesis 24. We find the servant of Abraham is sent out to find a wife, right? For Isaac. And he tells him, he goes and finds, he actually finds Rebecca, but he tells him that, that he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So the angel is going to guide you and direct you um, in that process. And he did. In Exodus, we find an angel helped guide the people of Israel uh, in the wilderness, as they escaped, uh, they protected God's people. It says when uh, Numbers 20, verse 16, when, 
when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. So there's an interesting reference to the, the cloud by day and fire by night. Yeah, cloud by day, fire by night. Sometimes get those inverted. Um, you know, that there was angelic presence going on in those situations. Matter of fact, in Exodus 14, when they stay at the edge of the Red Sea, it says the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel, which I believe is pre-incarnate Christ there, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, come between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and darkness. It lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So there's this kind of moved up, made a huge barrier, became completely dark on the side of the Egyptians and completely light on the other side so they could see the Red Sea. Obviously it was important because the Red Sea was about to open and they would part and walk through it. Um, we find Exodus 23, 20. It says, I sent an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. So there was angelic activity going on within the wilderness situation. In Acts 8, 26-27, we find an angel there guiding Philip, remember, to, to be intercept and go down a, a small road, and he didn't really know why, but go that way, and sure enough, he runs into the Ethiopian right, uh, eunuch, and you know, he happens to be reading Isaiah 53. <laughs> you know, and again, angels used him in that way. Uh, letter Q, uh, strengthen. In Luke's account, again, the Garden of Gethsemane, we find that with, uh, with Jesus. In Luke 22, 43, an angel appeared to, to strengthen him. In Daniel's account, it's interesting that we find angels bring strength to Daniel both physically and emotionally. Actually, there's, a, there's assistance even given emotionally in that way. Um, you know, we talk about application. There may be, very, very, may be indications at times if you're struggling emotionally, hard time, and your spirits change, you know, and your kind of emotions change, and maybe that was angelic activity um, that God sent to encourage you and to lift your spirits up, you know, in those ways. We find that with Daniel, Daniel 10, uh, 10 through 12, a hand touched me. Set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved. I, lo I love how he, he does that. Understand the words I speak to you. Stand upright, for now I have sent, I've been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. He said to me, Fear not, Daniel, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard. I have come because of your words. Again, same chapter, 18 through 20. It says here, The appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. He says, O man greatly loved. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong, good courage. He spoke to me, I was strengthened. And he said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he said, do you know why I've come to you? And I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia, and we'll go out and behold, the prince of Greece will come. Um, we find in Luke's account of Paul's imminent shipwreck in Acts 27, it says there, remember he's about to die, and everyone's like, oh, we're all going to die. And it says, an angel stood before him, it says, um, to whom I belong and whom I worship. Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted all, you all those who sail with you. So the angel stood to, to give him courage and give him strength um, in, the, in the midst of catastrophe there. Letter R. Learn. This is an interesting one. Um, we find angels benefit from us. They benefit from us. Uh, scripture is clear that they are they are learners. They ask questions, they watch, they learn. Uh, Daniel eight, we hear Daniel kind of overhearing a conversation of two angels talking, asking questions about things that are going on. Um, so they know they don't know everything. They're not omniscient. They ask questions, but they're interested. So they're learning. Um, New Testament, 
we find angels uh, almost like a picture of them as students. Uh, we see a few references um, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 4, 9. Paul says, God has exhibited us, apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Uh, a spectacle, a sight uh, for angels to see. Uh, he says in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 5, verse 21, uh, in the presence of God, of Christ Jesus, and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's like they're an angelic notary or something, I'm not sure. But they are there to uh, in their presence um, as well. 1 Corinthians 4, 9. Sorry, I just did that one. Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. We find probably two of the most fascinating here in 1 Peter. We find here that it says, for, to me, Paul says, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, bring to light every, to everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Uh, what? <laughs> like you would, you would think you'd end that differently. It's like, Oh, no, God's, God, has, God has this plan with the church and bringing these people together. Context there, chapter 2, he's brought the Jew and Gentile together, broke down the dividing wall, created this church, and he's done all that so that the angels can learn about my wisdom. That's basically what he says. It's interesting, right? They are, they are, we are, as a church, reveal God's wisdom. Um, again, by bringing a people who are dispersed at Babel, a people who are enemies of God and of each other and bringing them together to love one another and care for one another and the angels are observing and seeing and learning um, those those things. And again, they are not omniscient. They saw creation, they saw the power of God like we'll never see. But we experience redemption and we understand grace that they'll never understand. You know that, right? Because they have not sinned, they don't know, they don't have the experience of grace of God. They don't have the experience of the patience of God. What's it got to be patient with them for? Um, the mercy of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, none of those, they, they don't understand any of those things experientially, right? And God, again, uh, he, he chose to, to use us to display those attributes so they can see visually what that looks like. Here's how Peter puts it. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, um, uh, requiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ's subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he just adds, things into which, into which angels long to look. Bent over, the idea stooped over, looking, observing. Um, really interesting. Again, being sinless creatures, they will never experience God's mercy, God's grace, God's wrath. Uh, and God could, again, he could have chosen to use a, you know, board like this or a keynote presentation or something and be like, here, draw a picture, here's what, here's what mercy looks like or any of that. He didn't do that. He chose to use us to teach the angels about himself. Isn't that interesting? And so the church becomes almost like a university for angels and we are the professors and Jesus is just the curriculum. The church becomes a game. The angels get to watch. We are the players. Jesus is the coach. The church becomes a theater for angels to view. We are the actors. Jesus is the writer and the producer. We have a far far larger viewing audience than we ever thought about. They're learning. They're learning even through your sin, through your failures. And God shows you mercy and gives you grace. And they're like, oh, that, that's what grace is, right? So they're learning about things about God even through your failure. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. Um, 
Yeah, they learned a lot. <laughs> all right, last last one, number 17. What should be our response? All right? A few quick things. I'll give you the notes for the rest of this, but just a few quick points. Uh, we should be apprehensive is the first point I want to bring up. What I mean by that is you need to be careful, okay, as we'll talk about when we get to demons, that Satan masquerades, what, as an angel of light, all right? Don't assume um, that those, that those, you know, again, angels are not to, to be worshipped. Angels are, there's nowhere in Scripture that angels are to be prayed to or talked to in any capacity. We don't find that, that idea uh, of any worship or, or prayer being given uh, to any particular angel. Matter of fact, uh, I'm going to skip down to Colossians 2.18. Uh, makes it very clear that we aren't to do this sort of thing. It says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensual mind. Don't, you know, no worship of, of angels. Again, in John, we saw that, right? The angels like, don't worship me, worship God. And again, there's no uh, examples of that. We find in Galatians 1.8 that uh, it says, Paul says, If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, let him be accursed. Right? There are angelic beings called fallen angels that will give you a different gospel, okay? Um, and uh, again, uh, 2 Corinthians 11, we saw that, um, verses 13 through 15, angels, uh, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And we'll address this when we get to demons, but understand that when Isaiah references God as being the only God, right? The references over and over again in Isaiah, that the only true God, that means that anything else that claims to be God, or anything else that claims to be worshipped, is an idol and is fueled by demons. Now, that doesn't, that's not politically correct, I understand that, but, but, um, but it's true. Any other so-called God of any other religion is not a God, because they don't exist. What are they? They are demons. That's what they are. And if you're worshipping not the Jesus of the Bible, but some other pseudo-Jesus you've made up, or some other Jesus of another, another religion, or another god out there, that's not a god, that's a demon. Okay, that, that's what, we'll, we'll get to that when we, when we get to, to that. That's why I mean we need to be apprehensive. Okay, be careful um, on that. Uh, we should be awakened, letter B. Awakened. Um, angels remind us that the unseen world is real. There is a real spiritual war going on. It is a reality that you can't see, that occasionally God does allow his people to see. Sometimes that does happen. Um, I have a, a few missionary kind of biographies and stories. Um, very interesting how they, they describe a few of these. Listen to a few of these. John Patton, my favorite missionaries, he was surrounded by villagers. And it says when they all, they all suddenly ran away, later that villagers explained to him why they didn't kill him, because they were going to kill him. And he said, quote, Who were all those men who were with you? The chief asked. Why, there were no men with us. It was just my wife and myself, John said. The chief began to argue and say, no, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house. So we didn't attack you. We were afraid of them. <laughs> um, Marie Munson, who was a missionary to China, said they have surrounded her missionary compound and ran away. A few days later, she asked them why they did that. And they said, quote, we saw tall soldiers with shining faces on a high roof of the compound. Again, very similar stories, different time periods, different parts of the world. East Africa Missionary School of Children, surrounded by a band of natives. Um, they saw torches coming, circling the place with no escape. Suddenly, the, the natives ran out into the woods and ran away. Later on, they asked them, why didn't they kill, come kill the children that they were going to do? They said, quote, we were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in the school, 
But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords. And we became we'd be afraid, and we ran and hid. Clyde Taylor, missionary to South Africa, surrounded by villagers who were intent on killing him. They were headhunters. And uh, he says, uh, asked them why they didn't kill him. They said, quote, I remember that night. There were 44 of us, and we were coming to set fire to your hut. When we got there and surrounded the hut, we realized we could not attack because there were hundreds of men dressed in white with swords and shields standing all around your hut and even on top of your roof. And then uh, my favorite one, Carol Carlson, a missionary to Tibet, she said uh, one night a robber band was surrounded missionary station. She says they were on their way down a side street, and as they drew near to the walls of the missionary compound, the men were terrorized by the sight of men in white, walking not around the building or standing on top of the building, but walking along the side of the walls perpendicular to the ground. Can you imagine that sight? But it was interesting. All these descriptions are all very similar. I did this in a, in a college course I was teaching. It was a Bible college I was teaching, going through the book of Hebrews, and we are talking about angels, and I was sharing some of these stories. And one of the girls in class um, just, like, just stood up. She's like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, we're like, what? She's like, my dad's a principal in downtown L.A., it says that one time when, uh, when, when I was in high school, we had a drive-by shooting through our neighborhood, and they were shooting up all the houses, and we knew to take cover, and we jumped down. No, no bullets hit our house. The next day at school, um, I was uh, overhearing kids in the hallway were talking about what, you know, what they had done and how they had shot up the neighborhood, and they were all talking about that one house that they didn't shoot because they were, she said, because there were men standing in the front yard and all white and with swords in their hand. And so they, they drove right by and kept going. She's like, that's exactly what, what, we, what we had happened, you know. And so there seems to be similar stories like that from, these are hundreds of years apart, different parts of the world. They're reading each other's and copying it, right? So it's interesting um, in that. Let us see. We should be uh, in awe. Um, again, we should uh, not be comp compelled to worship, but whenever someone met an angel, came face to face, they felt like they were going to die, right? Um, and so we, we should always remember that, that reverent aspect. Letter D, we should be appreciative. Um, we should remember that, again, we're joining with them. They are serving God. They're serving us. We should thank God. Uh, it's okay to thank God for angelic activity in your life. That's okay. You can do that. Just don't pray to angels, okay? But you can thank God uh, for their activity and what they're doing. Um, Letter uh, And we, again, as uh, Hebrews 13.2 says, we could actually be serving angels and we don't even know it, right? Angels unaware there, Hebrews 13.2. Lastly, we, we should anticipate uh, there's a time coming on new earth where we'll be in God's presence. And what is currently the case in Hebrews 2 says that we are now under angels, but that's going to reverse and change to where 1 Corinthians 6.2, Paul's going to tell us that we're going to rule angels. He just says that and keeps going in 1 Corinthians 6.2. Um, you want to pause and be like, can you tell me more? But there's a sense of delegation, authority, where angels, we will, we will give angels instructions. We will give them things to do on the new earth. Um, we'll be able to have conversations. We can ask them about what was it like to see God speak things into existence. And they can ask us, like, what, so how, how, what is grace like? What does that mean? How did you experience that, right? What, uh, and so they get to, you get to have these conversations. We'll get to have them, right, on a new earth. All right. Any final questions? Sorry, I zoomed through that last part. I'll email you those notes so you have those. Um, we'll pick up with uh, Satan and Demons next Sunday night. All right? Let me pray. Father, thank you for our time. Um, thank you for, uh, Lord, th thank you for creating angels. Thank you for having them adore and worship you. God, they're a model to us, really, of how much we should be um, uh, worshiping you and love you and adore you uh, for who you are. 
At the same time, thank you for creating them to serve us and help us. And, Lord, you didn't have to do that. By your sovereign design, you could just do everything yourself. But, God, you have created these beings to do that. And so we thank you for um, all the activity they've had in our life, and we don't even know it. And um, we pray, God, that you would uh, encourage us in the fight and uh, make us strong as we fight the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.